0: Good morning, everyone. So, we're continuing our discussion of Avatar Tattva. And yesterday we segued into a discussion about a particular descent of the Absolute in the form of Balaram in commemoration of his appearance in the world. Baladif, Purnim, the full moon, commemorating his appearance. And um, it's worth noting that although he makes an appearance as an avatar, he is the source of the avatars as well. And so, anyway, today we begin the discussion from Bhagavad Gita, fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. There's some um, uh, discussion of this uh, principle, avatar tattva, which, um, in the context of the, the section of the Gita, the first six chapters, is a kind of a tangential uh, tangent. It goes, uh, Krishna goes on a tangent here. Um, out away from the main uh, uh, discourse, and of course he loops back back into it. But um, this is so because the abhutar of course is, has something to do with the theology of the Gita, and thus far this hasn't been the discussion. The discussion is in the first six chapters is about tuham, about you, about us, and not about tat. About that which we are, or that to whom we belong. Tat means that, but it means him also, or his. So, you are his. Tat asi. You might have heard this famous dictum from the uh, Upanishads. Well, this is the devotional explanation of it. You are that, after all, doesn't make a lot of sense but you are his, that <laughs> does make a, a bit more sense. Uh, you are you, and he is he, and the two have the potential for a unity, but it's a dynamic unity, unity in, in love, where you and I become, if you will, we, or you and he become we. So that's a unity, the we, but uh, our individuality is is preserved at the same time enough for there to be reciprocal dealings, which is what love constitutes for the most part, so a dynamic type of uh, unity this is what the gita advocates ultimately, and so the first six chapters talk about largely about about us, the difference between us and what we think ourselves to be, um, and the means to extract ourselves from that misidentification, various means according to the level of our understanding and the purity of our heart, uh, what means will be most efficacious in terms of definitively, in terms of realization, real knowing, inner wisdom, understanding our the difference between ourselves and matter. But if we are to understand ourselves entirely, that will not result just from understanding that which we are not if we are not matter, if we are not that which is perceived and has no capacity to perceive but who are the perceiver who by extending its, its capacity of its uh, life, its, uh, its, its capacity to perceive its awareness into material things seems to make them come alive. Matter, in other words, in all of its forms takes on a life as a result of consciousness lending itself to that material thing. As I've said before, if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? So we are the, the knowers and we are the carers, so to speak. So uh, to distinguish ourselves from matter is part of the equation of coming to know ourselves. It's to know that which we are not. But what we are, in a more full sense, is to be understood as well. And the that knowledge is, uh, is relational, in other words, what we are in relation to the absolute, what we are in relation to ultimate reality, what we are in relation to God, as we are seen through the eyes of God, how God perceives us what is our purpose, and so forth. This is the idea. So the second six chapters, anyway, deal with, with him, that the theology of the Gita comes out. But here in the fourth chapter, which is dealing with, with us and the difference between ourselves and matter, Krishna segues for, for a few verses into the theology of the Gita. Here in the Gita, for the first time in this section, the word bhakti is used, the concept of a devotee is brought up, so this is a kind of a, a prefacing of the forecasting of uh, what's to lie ahead in terms of fully knowing ourselves, knowing ourselves in relation to to the Absolute in, a, in, a, in, in the context of of a loving relationship. So, Bhagavan says, Imam Prahu Praha so, thus far, Krishna has instructed Arjuna that there is a path of action, selfless action, and there's a path of knowing. And that the two have the same objective in mind. In that sense, they're one. I mentioned the other day that Bhaktivinoda in the last verse of the sixth chapter, which concludes this section on what we are or are not, being independent of matter, and talking about all the different types of yogic disciplines that have been described, Nishkam, Karma Yoga, Gyan Yoga, Dhyan Yoga, and so forth, and Bhakti Yoga, uh, says that these, all these different types of yoga are really, it's all one. Yoga is one, so to speak. Different stages in um, forming a union with the absolute that culminates in Bhakti, so although ostensibly Krishna's been speaking about karma, yoga, and gyan yoga, here with the introduction of the principle of the avatar and some theology, we get some... Um, he's also obviously has to be speaking about bhakti to an extent. So overtly he's not talking directly about bhakti because he hasn't discussed it directly. And he says here uh, that... "Imam uh, he said that previously, Arjuna, this yoga that I have been talking about, which is the karma yoga, jnana yoga, and so forth, but if we look more deeply at it or more comprehensively at it, he's talking about this yoga which is an which is, uh, uh, understanding of bhaktivinoda, vino,da a uh, unity, it shows itself in this stage as nishkam karma, in this stage as gyan yoga, in this stage as dhyana yoga, and in the full manifestation of the term yoga as bhakti. So he says this this yoga that I've been uh, talking about. He says um, a couple of things about it. He says prokta aham avyayam. Is he says that. It's not the first time I've talked about it. So he he's explained this to Arjuna, and he's what what he's trying to do is is awaken faith in Arjuna in his in his words and in his advice, and in his instruction, and ultimately in himself, because the idea will culminate in Krishna saying, "Just depend on me." And these different types of yoga that are mentioned are, are like just kind of falling short of entirely depending on him, but they're not disconnected from that. So it's a development, as I say. The Gita works in a wonderful way. It speaks directly about bhakti and indirectly about bhakti, so that we can see the contrast between what is bhakti, what is not bhakti, what is the results of one and the other, and so forth. So this kind of weaving between the different paths and so forth is all for the sake of Really awakening faith in bhakti and in himself. So he's introducing it all gradually. And uh, if he was just to say, listen, Arjun, because uh, Krishna has a relationship with Arjun. Historically, in the context of the Leela, Arjun and Krishna are friends. Um, they're cousin brothers, they're cousins, and they're of the same age, practically. And they've met in the in the city. Krishna comes from the village, but he left the village. And Leela and he came to the to the uh, Tura and Dwarka. Hastinapur, and here he is, uh, uh Arjuna is a prince, Krishna's a prince, and they're buddies. It's called Purisambanda. It's a kind of um, in Rasa aesthetic rapture with the absolute Krishna has Arjun has a particular relationship. He's a city pal, a friend from the city. Uh, and when Krishna's in the city, then his godhood is manifested expressed more readily than when he's in the pasture and in the in the in, in the village there um, less uh, less isvarya, light less god, godliness and more madhurya more sweetness he's more human like more accessible more intimacy is possible so arjuna is a friend but he's a city friend and his friendship with Krishna, sakya, is mixed with servitude. So Arjuna is in a way the ideal um, example of a disciple. Rupa Goswami says, Vishram Vena Guru Seva. He talks, uh, when he ex- explains about bhakti, uh, in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Rupa Goswami says that, oh, the sadhana of bhakti, the spiritual culture of bhakti, it begins with taking shelter of a guru. And let me enumerate the different arms of that, the different limbs of this bhakti. So one is you take shelter of the guru, you get uh, instruction from the guru, you get initiation from the guru, and vishrambena guru seva. You serve him vishrambena. Vishramba means, it means with great faith, it means with, but more it means with a kind of a confidence. And confidence comes amongst friends. Amongst friends we feel confidence, and um, we feel some, we're on equal footing. Now, we're not on equal footing with God, we're not on equal footing with, with, our, with our guru, but the relationship between Arjuna and Krishna is one of friendship, as I said, mixed with servitude, so this is the ideal kind of mix. The disciple has a serving disposition towards the, towards the teacher, but the teachings being what they are. Full of affection, and and so so it, it borders on friendship, not to the point. Uh, well, just it, it borders on in a kind of a confidence. And uh, Vishrumba is the pradhan of sakya. Actually, it means the root of this feeling. And it's some of the devotees that have this relationship with Krishna in friendship, in sakya rasa, they have a they they feel. In the brudge, in, the, in which is the the ideal, that the the intimate the intimate um, pastoral village setting of Krishna's leela, they have a equal feel. They feel e- uh, an equality with Krishna. They have a kind of love that um, just like with your friend. If you bump into your friend, you don't say, "Oh, excuse me." Or if you they touch even a stranger, or they touch you on the street, you go, "Oh, sorry, excuse me." Sorry, but when there's intimacy and friendship and equality, then then their body and your body, there's, there's the extent, you extend yourself by that friendship, and there's no there's no difference. So Krishna's friends, they have no qualms about putting their feet on him, even resting their feet on him, in certain instances in the leela, wrestling with him and and and, and make, winning in the in the in the wrestling match and. And the result is that Krishna has to carry them on his shoulders for a certain distance, and these are the kind of games they make up, and, and so forth. So, they have no sense that he's different from us. We're equal. They think he's special. That's another thing. But, but, there's a sense of, uh, equality. This is the root, then, Vishwamba, of, of, uh, this Sakya Bhakti, which is the, the basis of the whole Leela. It's all based it arises from this and goes up there in terms of intimacy. So, anyway, Arjuna is a friend. He's a city friend. And his friendship is, so it's a little bit, there's a little bit more sense that Krishna is God. So that sometimes they'll find some distance will be created when Krishna gives a powerful instruction or shows, as he does in the 11th chapter of the Gita, how the whole world is contained within him. Arjuna goes, wow, you're God too. <laughs> and I've been dealing with you just as a friend and so forth. If this happens in Vrindavan, in the pastoral Leela, if Krishna shows some godhood, the friends won't think like that. When Krishna lifted the Govardhan hill, then his friends said, well, this guy needs some help. And they put their sticks there also to hold it up. They didn't think that, it didn't distance them from their friendship, such as the power of their friendship. So, Arjuna's friendship is a little different. He's a city friend and it's mixed with dasya, servitude. And this, in a sense, as I say, is the ideal kind of relationship between guru and disciple. Krishna and Arjuna are the, the perfect example of teacher and master. Krishna has, Arjuna has such affection for Krishna, that he feels that, that, that Krishna is his best friend. So we shall feel like the guru is my best friend, he cares about me. And um, at the same time, it's, there's, this, uh, there's some servitude, so we know we're not exactly on the, equal. And generally, the guru has such affection. This is why it comes about. He shows so such affection to us. So Krishna is explaining this, uh, this yoga to him. And he wants to, in the context of all of his teachings, awaken faith in Arjuna that simply by taking shelter of him, that... Um, this is the kind of the perfection of yoga. Arjuna, of course, we're talking about him in different contexts. He's an eternal associate of Krishna. He has nothing to learn. But in the Gita, he takes a position arranged by Krishna of appearing to be in ignorance, and he's enlightened through the instructions of Arjuna. And We, we learn by that by following the example of Arjuna. So, in the context of enlightening us, then he's talking about different types of yoga and, uh, and so on and so forth. All with again the purpose of awakening faith in himself and the efficacy of just of just being a devotee of just of just loving him. Just love me. He says, be my devotee. This is. You want to make it simple. The Gita here it is in one sentence. Just do this. But our minds are not so simple, so we may need lots of explanations and reasoning as to why that could be so and. And Arjuna, Krishna looks like somebody driving Arjuna's chariot here in the Gita. Arjuna is the is the warrior, and Krishna is driving the chariot. He's like the the chauffeur, yeah. And the, the chauffeur is is God. So there's some explanation is required. So, and Krishna's been showing is showing a fair amount of knowledge in talking about uh, yoga, and so he says to Arjuna, he wants to give some history. He says. Incidentally, this yoga that I've been teaching you about, it's not a new thing. It's not a new, new fad, he says, but it's been around for a long time. And uh, this is what the real import of what he wants to say here in the first verse. This has been around for a long, long time. And when we hear that something's been around for a long time, it lends uh, credibility to it. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. The longer things endure, the more credibility they have. That's why, for example, our waking state, we give more credibility to than our dreaming state. Because in dreams, things come and go real fast. The same things happen in the waking state, but this takes longer, like we said the other day, <laughs> for that you know, object of our affection to turn into our you know worst nightmare, something like that. <laughs> it takes a little longer, that's all, usually... But it's the same affair. But anyway, the point is that that the, the extent to which something is enduring, it hence grants credibility. And this seeks also to tell us that, that that which endures is real. That which endures is real. That which has no endurance is not real in the ultimate sense. That's why the great Shankar said, well, that which doesn't endure is not real. That which endures is real and consciousness is that which uh, endures. So consciousness is real and it says something like this consciousness, reality is that which cannot be denied or dismissed. So many things in terms of their being real in as much as they lack endurance we may dismiss them. It's not enduring. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. So, we don't think a dream is real sometimes just because of that reason. Well, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Because of the lack of endurance or a passing thought or something. But again, something that is well thought out and, and uh, endures for some time, we give it more, more credence. So, if we can dismiss a thing, then to that extent, it means it doesn't endure, and it's not real. But consciousness... Can't be dismissed because the very act of dismissal itself is an act of consciousness. So this way he reasoned, and well, consciousness is real. That which endures, and we are of that nature, and we are the observer of the ever-changing material phenomena that's coming and going around us, and so forth. And we should step back from it and watch the show and not get plugged into it the virtual reality of of materialist material life uh, and go through the troubles and the anxieties that come from being plugged into to a world of uh, of uh, that's not enduring I mean, we're an enduring entity and so we're plugged into something that doesn't endure no wonder it's going to be disconcerting it appears as if we won't endure at some point and so we're struggling uh, to try to make an arrangement that, that 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 we won't meet with non-existence, that we won't die, as everything is dying, but there's something in us that won't die. That's the the, the sense that we don't die, <laughs> and so we, we're struggling to find that somehow or other to to uh, to realize that. Yoga is for that. So Krishna says, "Look, friend." Arjuna, this has been around for a long time, what I'm telling It's not just coming from me. I'm not just making this up, he's saying. I mean, I, he said, I spoke this a long time ago. Here's some some of the Hindu cosmology, ancient Hindu cosmology comes in. The sun god is mentioned, Manu, the so-called father of mankind, and so forth. It may be hard sometimes to identify with these, these figures in Hindu cosmology, given, you know, science and and uh, the cosmology of today, but the point here is that what? That the interest in yoga, which is interest in yourself, and ultimately interest in yourself involves interest in God, because our full self, as I said, will be known in terms of our relationship with God and love. This, this kind of interest, this is, this is the perennial question that arises in human society. As long as human society, civilized human society has been around, the question why has been around. And yoga is there to answer the question why. That's what it's for. And you can try to do away with this why question. I saw a debate between a theist and an atheist. And uh, not long ago, an atheist said, there are no why questions they are only how questions. It's only a matter of time before all the why questions are answered by the how. By how. And I thought that I would have said, my question is, why do I have to listen to this? <laughs> <laughs> why means consciousness. That's what it means. Why. Why. Why I am. Why I be. Why anything is. Why? What's the purpose? And science wants to tell us, largely, uh, or at least some people in that community, there is no purpose, there is no meaning. It's just how things work like this. This happens, and that happens, and there's no ultimate purpose, there's no meaning, and um, it's rather counterintuitive. And of course, they could say, well, just because it's counterintuitive, doesn't mean it's not real, and so forth. But my point here is, and the point of the Gita is that this question, why, will not will be around as long as consciousness is around. And consciousness is not going anywhere. Even if you create it in a test tube, it doesn't matter. It's going to say, why? <laughs> That's the first question it's going to ask. So you, you can't, you can't uh, really, uh, you can't do away with it. And it's to say yoga is there to answer, believe it or not. Hmm? But people have taken to yoga to answer the question. They're, they seem, there are examples of people are, who are so satisfied with the answers that they got they don't need anything else. Their inquiry has stopped. So in the inquiry, why, which is pressing in human society, I mean, even science is trying to find why, it's only a how, why there is no why question. So you really can't get around it, you can't get away from it. And as I say, yoga is there, and this is Krishna's message in the Gita, to answer the why question. And those who have taken it up, and taken it up well, they, they're satisfied their inquiry, the why inquiry has stopped. And their how of how to live has also become very simple. And there are people, there was, this, there was this one fellow who was a big atheist who admitted that there may be people living in caves who have taken to yoga. They're you know, the happiest people in the whole world. They're just living in a cave with apparently nothing. They have found something in their why inquiry through yoga that that uh, has to be acknowledged to one extent or another. And and also as I mentioned um about, as I mentioned before, the inquiry, the nature of the yogic inquiry that uh um, Arjun is being encouraged to make here, really, in these chapters, and that Krishna is, is answering to is a very objective uh inquiry. In other words, if you are to take up yoga, you have to it's a radical uh, approach to objectivity. After all, it, it's it involves detachment, doesn't it? In the context of bhakti, as I said, it involves letting go of things that aren't favorable to bhakti, so that's some kind of practical detachment and a controlling of the mind and the senses and so forth. This is uh, a radical approach, as I say, to uh, objectivity. Because if you're attached to something, then you can't see it for what it is, right? Mother called or named her blind son uh, lotus-eyed. She couldn't see that he was blind. She saw his eyes like lotuses because she loved him. So the subjectivity that Like, for example, science wants us to step back from stop being emotional and having your psychological needs, let's be objective about it and so forth, which is all fine and all, but yoga is a very radical approach to objectivity. It means you, not just in the lab, in your life. Like I said, how you sit will depend on how you walk. That is the teaching of the Gita. When Krishna begins to speak about sitting in the sixth chapter, he, he introduces it by saying, you can't sit unless you walked properly. In other words, unless you walked in the world in a different way, not after that carrot, the fruit that's motivating the whole world to work, but with detachment from the fruit, not carrot chasing, that kind of working, that unless you've walked in that in that way, which results in the purification of the heart, you can't sit. So it's, it's really asking you to be very... Uh, Radically uh, objective and become detached from all the, th- from the whole identity that you have that comes from attachments. The identity is subjective. I'm a scientist. It's a subjective identity, right? coming from different attachments. You want to study in a certain way and learn. And, and he's, a, he's also a father, or she's also a mother and a wife. And I'm a father because I'm attached to my children. I'm a son because I'm attached to my. my my parents and so forth. Our identity, materially speaking, is based on our attachments. And yoga calls for us to step back from these attachments because it's giving us an unclear, distorted picture of what we are and what there is in life. We're attached to things. We want to use them for our mentally conceived purpose. And they have a purpose of their own. that's greater than what we can think of how to use them for. So we kind of take the life out of them by... Identifying them only in relation to our uh, mental and sensual sensibilities, so it's a very radical approach to being objective. You know, you have to experiment on yourself. You have to, um, and and as I say, and those who take it up radically, in in, in the context of trying to answer the why question, they have answered it. They don't need any more answers. Nothing can nothing can sway them from their their persuasion. They have no they, they have no doubt. And they demonstrate that because what you know will be determined by what you do. And that goes for bhakti, too. <laughs> this isn't just for entertaining here. If you know and you understand what the Gita is talking about, then there should be some action that follows that. We're not just here just fill our heads with some information but to, in, to uh, inform us and in effect change our hearts so where our heart is that's where we're, where we're going to go what we're going to do and so forth so these kind of sessions gatherings retreats and so forth should <coughs> generate a, a, a foster a serving disposition in us coming forward and participation and uh, self-sacrifice giving and all which are at the basis of uh, of love and bhakti, so Krishna wants to say here by by saying, "I taught this a long time ago to the sun God, and he taught it to the Manu, and without getting you know distracted by a, a cosmology that might be difficult to understand unless you look at it in a subtle yogic sense, and so forth the The overriding point here is that this has been around since forever, and it 's the question." This yoga is the answer to the question, why? And it's, it's it's rooted in the very basis of existence, which is rooted in consciousness, without which there is no experience of existence. There might be an existence independent of consciousness, but, hmm. but if we speak about a conscious experience, then this question, why, arises. so Yoga is to answer that. and Krishna says, so this has been around a long time. This is the the real perennial philosophy. It keeps surfacing in human society no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what other ideas you as a conscious being come up with to do away with consciousness, which is how absurd thinking can get and how much thinking can get in the way of knowing. This is an important point. We think we know because we think, but if we could stop thinking, we would know a lot more. <laughs> so we can think so destructively as to come up with a conclusion that that we don't uh, exist, ultimately, or question whether we do. I mean, it's—I know it sounds absurd, but uh, but it happens. People think like this, or to reason away the uh, uh, our enduring selves. Uh, consciousness and so forth. Um, So, Krishna says, this is the perennial question. Why? And yoga is the answer to that. And I've been giving this answer for a long time, so it's not something just new I've come up with. I know it may sound new and it's not what most people do. Most people are going in a very different direction. So it's hard maybe to get faith in this and change your life and become a weirdo. You know, You know, I mean, maybe it's popular to be into yoga now, but if you're really into yoga, then you're going to be questioned. Also, you've gone too far. You've you've, you've connected it with its religious origins in Hinduism, hmm, starting to sound strange and uh, not very modern and hip. And if you're going to just you know, you do yoga to lose some weight or increase your capacity for sexual indulgence or whatever, it's you know. So many different kinds of yoga out there and it's commercial and it's marketable and the more you go in the direction of what yoga is really about, the less marketable it is, <laughs> the less interest there will be, the less there will be funding for that and so forth and so on. Of course, we learn the less funding we need also ultimately. You could be happy with less and, and so on. So, uh, so I guess the way Arjuna is trying to get uh, Krishna's trying to get Arjuna's attention and his, his faith and uh, and uh, gain some credibility in his eyes about what he's talking about. So he wants to talk about... It's been around a long time. Not everybody knows about it, but that's that's another thing. He's going to come to that. Not every, It's a secret thing. Not everybody knows about it, but and again, secret things may be the best things. This is uncommon knowledge. This is not the common fare. Krishna is not, you know, Ganesh. Ganesh is one of the gods. Gan means it means the, the people, the general people. H means the Lord. So he's the Lord of the common people. What do the common people want? Go to Walmart. You know, that's what they want. You know? <laughs> so Ganesh is the Lord of Walmart. <laughs> uh, he's not a bad person by any means, but uh, you know, that's what people want. So they. they Put him in front of your business, and you know you hope it will, f- will flourish. He removes obstacles for material progress, and Krishna puts obstacles in our path <laughs> so that we'll be frustrated in our attempts to try to pursue you know the empty bag of, of material packaging that makes things look like they're more promising and enduring than they are that 's his kindness so this way he wants to awaken in faith in, in Arjuna and what he's talking about. And he says, look, this yoga that I'm talking about, I have proktavan. I have explained it before. And pro, pra, pra means projita, means completely. I've thoroughly explained this. This is, a well, means this is well thought out. It's been around for a long time. He says, agayam it's imperishable. It means it's been around forever. For one thing, he says I've spoken about it in a way that's comprehensive. In other words, I just didn't make this up. And then later on, I say something else, and I've contradicted myself. Sometimes I discuss with people, and you know, and they make arguments and whatnot. And, we, and, and then they—you may have had the same experience—and they jump to something. You, you get them on a point, and they just, instead of having the integrity to admit it, they just jump to another point, and, and then they ended up contradicting themselves. You got to sit down, and say, look, write a book, okay? You got to write it out, will you? Right, take the time, write it all down, then we'll see if it's coherent, if it really makes any sense. So Krishna wants to say, I've said this and it's coherent, it's I've I've spoken about it comprehensively, completely, thoroughly, exhaustively. You know, it's uh, it's it's like if you think, you know, there's the same idea earlier, of endurance lends credibility, the Ivy League. So if you know, if you get into the Ivy League college, it means it's got ivy growing up the walls. It's I mean it 's been there for a long time, you know it 's a pillar of education and, and uh, it 's not something that popped up in Iowa you know t m you know university or something which won 't be given as much credibility that 's how they you know look at it but and again, meditation has been around for a longer time than the Ivy League. Um, so he says this, and this he wants to talk a little bit about the history. Of his teaching this yoga, which is interesting because here he is sitting with Arjun on the chariot and their friends, and he's being the chauffeur of Arjun. And uh, he's saying, I taught this a long time ago. So, this is while he's awakening faith in Arjun, he's also creating a doubt in Arjun. So, this is the nature of the teaching. When we teach, we will clear doubts and we will also create doubts because. We have to take the student into new territory always. And as you start to go into new territory, then there's some doubts. But Arjuna is a good student, voices his doubt, and Krishna, as a good teacher, as we'll see here, speaks in such a way as to let Arjuna know, there's room for, your, for, for express your doubts. Don't We're friends. No problem. When the teacher inhibits the doubting, then we should doubt. Hmm? and And then then if we do doubt, but the answers don't come as satisfy us, then we have no obligation to follow. <laughs> it may be our fault, it may be our lack of we, we, we may be answered with good reasoning and so forth and scriptural reference and so on, but we may be emotional and psychologically you know um oriented in such a way that it's that, that going forward and embracing that truth becomes troublesome, so we obfuscate and rationalize and that's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is the teacher doesn't really know and can't really answer the questions and satisfy us. And so, and we—that's the only reason we follow anyway. We follow out of love and out of confidence and out of out of the knowing that comes from from a a potential you know teacher-student relationship where that should foster knowing, confidence. So while he's, as I say, giving the history, and what, what relevance now does this have to Avatar Tatva? The relevance is that Krishna speaking about the science of yoga, he speaks about how it comes to this world, and that's a t- type of descent, isn't it, of of the Godhead, you know, to of the Absolute to us into the relative world, to take us out. So he's talking about how the teachings come, and in the context of that, he's explained himself to be the teacher. And then he will explain how the teachings, when they come, sometimes they get obscured, and how he comes again to rectify it. And so, the principle of the avatar, he comes again, yada yada hi dharmasya. And he comes again and again to renew the teachings. So, he's kind of speaking here about the kind of avatar we read about the first morning from Chaitanya Charitamrita, the yuga avatar, the avatar that comes in every yuga to. Renew the teaching and and explain it according to the, to the the, the particular environment of that, yuga which which produces a certain psychology in the people and a certain moral fiber fabric of the people and so forth. In that context, he's speaking about it, and also in the context, as we see, of the of another type of avatar. And we we'll go to that here in the second verse. He says, "Evam parampara praptam imam raja mahata again he's st- still continuing about the history of this he says i spoke it a long long time ago and comprehensively and to important people i gave the message of the gods and the gods have handed it to the to the humans and uh, and so he he says there's a succession through which this comes comes down and i'm the origin of that and that's called, we call it parampara, but it really means one after another. One after another. So one teacher after another is handing this knowledge down, like in a chain, hmm. like in an unbroken chain. So evam paramparam praptam. He says, this knowledge, the imperishable knowledge of yoga that I explained before, is obtainable praptam. You can get it by connecting with this parampara, this succession, this lin- with a lineage. Stemming from me, this is where you can get it. This is the channel through which this knowledge comes into the world, the way of its descent. Again, avatar means to cross from up to down, so this is a kind of a descent. And here he's talking about, ostensibly, the guru Paramprat, so the teacher, the master, the teacher, the master. And the guru is, as we mentioned briefly the other day, a kind of, in bhakti, it's a kind of avatar, it means that in the teacher, the God is represented in a particular way. That in that way, is, it's a representation of the compassion and the mercy of the Godhead. Readily, those who have a more experience of suffering have capacity to be compassionate and show empathy to others who are suffering. And Krishna is aloof from this but not entirely. He is omniscient after all. So he manifests his, it's his kripa, it's his mercy that is manifest through the Guru Parampara. That's the way he he extends compassion to the fallen by placing his kripa shakti in a vaishnava, in a devotee, empowering him with that. And that devotee has experience largely of the suffering of others, being close to it, seeing it, or having experienced it himself or herself in the progress of of becoming an, an, an adept oneself, and so this is the formula, so to speak, where through which the means by which Krishna extends himself beyond himself, so to speak. That's why we say the devotee is almost more important than than Krishna to us, because the devotee personifies the teaching and so forth, and Krishna loves the devotees so. If we love the devotees, the devotees love us, Krishna will love us, and so on and so forth. Krishna says in Adi Purana, those who say they are my devotee, they're not my devotee, but those who say they are devotee of my devotee, they're my devotee. Uh, It's after all, bhakti is about service, so the more we can be in a serving disposition, the closer we become to Krishna. We shouldn't think that the guru is getting in the way of God, I should remove him. Hmm? No, Guru is the manifestation of divinity that makes him accessible, God, God, divinity accessible to us. It's just like a telescope. If I give you a telescope, then there's a big lens on the end, and then it gets smaller, smaller, smaller. So many lenses, something like that. And so, if you say, "Hey, I don't want to be cheated. I'm going to look through the big lens, not the small one," then you just get a blur and a headache. Right? But if you put the small lens here, then it'll go. Oh, sh- and magnifying and you see the whole stellar and the constellation and so forth so this is how Guru Parampara works for us but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing to understand after all again Krishna sitting here on the chariot with Arjuna so he just looks like a chauffeur and he's Krishna's Arjuna's friend but Krishna has to tell him there's, there's another dimension to me I'm your friend but here I'm I'm your teacher also and I've, I know a lot actually I've been around for a long time I taught this whole thing comprehensively to to gods and you're just a you know my friend I'm telling it to you too and there's a reason for that he says and I'll get to that but I'm kind of you know different too I'm your friend but I'm different also I have a different experience base and uh, you know I spoke to the gods listen to me and I told them this, and I'm telling it to you, so um, I want to give you some perspective on who you're, you're sitting with because Krishna looks just like a chauffeur, and a guru looks just like one of us. He eats, he, he takes rest, he walks and talks and, and whatnot. So we have to see the guru then. You know, you could sit with me and we can just chat and so forth. But if I sit here and talk, you'll, some distance will be created. Right? You think, well, some unity will be there too. But you think he knows something. <laughs> Why? Can, we could just sit and talk about any old thing, and you might just think, well, he's just like one of us. I and mean, there's, there's some truth to that too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, knowledge is heavy. So guru means heavy. Means not overweight, but that he has a heavy knowledge, grounded, and he can help to to to, to ground us, and so so. Arjuna, Krishna's kind of engaged in an exercise here of, of revealing to his friend Arjuna that he's more than just a friend. And uh, so the guru has that kind of task also to reveal, to awaken faith in what he or she uh, represents. So he comes in a, or she comes in a lineage, one after another, evam, parampara, praptam, and this is the channel, the lineage, the, the medium through which this why question can be comprehensively answered. Yoga can be, reach its culmination and, and and so forth. And so, I mean, you know, let's say to awaken faith in that, to say, you know, the absolute truth is at 22001 panorama way, Philo, California, just turn there, you know. It's okay, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it requires some, some discussion, hopefully, and some good e- example as well. To convince others, so again, our Krishna is in the midst of this kind of thing. So he says, Evam praptam, imam raja shayu vidhu. Hmm? So this this is the this, this knowledge of is obtained through this uh, succession, and the successor is going to be closest to us and more like us. And the more like us, the better. If you're an American or Canadian. You know, pretty much the same. Good to have, it's good to have a, you know, an American guru. Why? First thing, it's good to have a guru, period, who's qualified from anywhere, from the moon or Mars, to get a qualified guru. That's the absolute principle. If you can get one that's also from the same country you're from, then there will be the same psychology, and he'll know your psychology better in the cultural context. Will, uh, that it, which is s- s- similar to both student and teacher will facilitate the explanation of the whole thing that much better. So, but the closer the guru is to us, the more something he has to he has to uh, make more of an effort to awaken faith. Because if he's some old guy from India with a long beard and doesn't talk your language, and then you don't know what you know. You think, wow, well, he's you know, oh, must be special. He might be. That's true, but but there's some distance created by that, you know, by age and by culture and language barrier and so forth and so on. So you kind of like so there's a there's a there's an advantage in one sense, and it's you might more readily faith might be created because you can't check him out <laughs> in so many ways. If he if you ask a question and he answers in a different way that doesn't quite answer your question. You just think, well, I guess he didn't, you know, he wanted to answer it in a different way. My question wasn't meaningful, you know. Or you have to think, I guess he didn't understand my question. Probably doesn't. English isn't his first language. And then if you start thinking like that. You start thinking, well, the guru is not great. He. Yeah. So these kind of issues come up. But the point is that if the guru <laughs> is relatively close to us, like in culture and so forth, um, and uh, country of origin, if you will, materially speaking, there's an advantage to that. If he's qualified or she's a qualified person, they can create the requisite faith by their example, by their um, knowledge and teaching, and then because there is a commonality there, that there's a better that better facilitates the communication of the concepts. So the guru who's closest to us. Will appear in one sense the most ordinary, but that's that's how. Just to to use another example, the Guru is Krishna, and Krishna empowers a devotee to act in a representative type of a way and show his compassion to other souls. And so Krishna's maybe on the altar there; he is, and the Guru's right, uh, you know, amongst us, and so forth. Um, but the fact of the matter is, Krishna has come to us in to the, to the Guru more readily than he has through the deity. After all, the deity, for the most part, doesn't talk, right? As we said the other day, but the Guru is talking. He knows, as he cares about. him, He asks questions. Krishna, the deity, spoke these things, but he's not asking questions these days. But through the Guru, he's asking, "Do you understand?" So, what, how, how do you understand? It? So, through he's. Krishna, through the Guru, is coming after us more readily. So we should really pay attention there. That's my own experience. I gave my everything to my, my Guru, and that's uh, whatever credit I have for whatever I am, that's due to the, uh, my Guru's mercy. So I recommend the same thing. And there's no law on this. If you feel that someone is your Guru, really, and you feel... Scriptures say we must have a Guru, but it's not a law. It means, I must have it. I've heard it here, and I just must. I've got to get a connection here. I feel this is good for me. I feel my life will, will, will be enhanced beyond my uh, expectations or my, my previous uh, notions of what my possibilities were. Therefore, I'm, I've got to attach myself here. I've got to make a connection here. So that kind of must, a must that comes from the heart, naturally, hmm? in a compelling way out of love, the love, the the must of love, not of law. And, um, you know, what do they call it? Social pressure, peer pressure, and intimidation, and so forth. And, and you've been coming for a while, you know, I think you should get initiated, you know. (laughs) You should be, you should be a member, you know. You should be careful about that. People, uh, explain it, exemplify it in such a way that people will love to follow it. So. He says, Krishna says, this teaching is descended through the parampara, through a, one after another, imam mm, evam parampara praptam imam raja uh, As I said, I spoke to, to the great raja the mystic seers and and uh, sages and uh, kings and so forth. And then he says something very interesting. He says, sakalinea mahata yoganashta parantapa. He says, but over time, over ka, time, the influence of time, this science, if you will, of yoga, addressing the why question, the original question of human consciousness, that will always be there as long as there's humanity, that question, that science to answer it, it gets yoga nashta, that, that yoga gets nashta, it gets obscured by the influence of time. And so, the implication is, that by this parampara system, I renew the teaching. I come to shed new light on it and restore it in its original purity and so forth, as it may be obscured or distorted by time's influence. Now you may think, well, how can something that's imperishable and it's the divine truth get obscured by time? Well, you know, Krishna himself has identified himself with time, so... That's his own arrangement. You can look at it like that. He's playing hide-and-seek with us. Here I am, and now I'm gone. Now I'm over here. Hmm. See me here. Now I'm over here. So, So he initiates the teaching, and by his own arrangement, by Kao, by time's influence, ultimately he's in the background of that, it becomes distorted. And that means opportunities to renew it, and bring new light to it, arises. And so the next you know, acharya teacher comes in the line and speaks about it in a new way. And almost in a way that people who have, who have attached themselves to it but misunderstood it and turned it into something less than what it is, a formal affair, uh, religious fanaticism, or something like that. The new renewal of the teaching comes in such a dynamic way that those people often can't even identify it as the same teaching that they were initially drawn in by. So some changing, some some, but not of principles, but of details and so forth is there. So it means this also that this this revelation that's being talked about here, this descent of the absolute into the w- relative world, is is dynamic and. Um, and it's ever, ever growing and fresh. It's not something one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I figured it out. As soon as you've done that, you, you've lost track of what it is. It's not measurable. It can't be arrested in the fist of your intellect. There's never no, a time when there's nothing more to say about it. There's always more to say about it. And so Krishna comes to renew it and shed new light and And um, we are to grow with it. It's always a challenge. The Guru's business is to challenge our understanding so that we have the opportunity to grow. That's why, as I said, while creating faith at the same time, he creates doubt by bringing us into new territory and then brings out our doubts and then satisfies the doubt And then we think we've understood it, so he creates more doubts (laughs) by giving new territory, and then this way we stay on the edge of our seat, so to speak, and that's what spiritual life is about. So when we are really in touch with the descent of the absolute in this world, it will be a very exciting affair. It won't be boring. It will be exciting. So with that, I'm going to stop briefly here today, and we'll continue this discussion tomorrow which will become more even more interesting i suspect as krishna speaks about what it is that, that attracts him to make these teachings available hmm? to share them the question is why is there for everybody but there's everybody asking why doesn't get the answer either but why some people are getting the answer that's a good why and, uh, that's what, something that, what attracts, what attracts Krishna and what makes Krishna even what he is. It's very interesting. So we see we have something to do with all this descent of divinity. Hmm? So, what's the time? Ten to eleven. Any question? So we've been speaking for an hour and a half. That's pretty long for everyone to sit. Any question? Yes. You said yesterday that the forest has felt like Purvarag towards Krishna and Varan. Well, yeah. can you explain that a little bit? Well, Purvarag means, means, it means falling in love for the first time. You haven't met your beloved, but you've fallen in love. You saw his picture, you heard about her, and uh, the chemistry was there, but you haven't talked yet and, and, and confirmed, I love you, and heard back, I love you too. So there's that kind of exciting kind of uh, period. It's a kind of a separation, love and separation, because you haven't met yet. But this budding of love is developing and is coming forth. So in Lila, when Krishna performs the Lila, what happens, for example, when it manifests in the world, the Lila, then the devotees, they go through this. They're always in love with Krishna. But the lila grows and expands and goes in a circular way, round and round and round. So they go through these experiences over and over again. Whenever Krishna appears in the world, gopis grow up, they fall in love with Krishna, Krishna falls in love with them, and it's all exciting drama. It's like reliving the best moments in your life over and over again, you know. <laughs> Something like that. That's the lila. And so, uh, so the forest in, in Poganda leela, when Krishna's becoming youth, for the first time, is getting to, getting to meet him. They've heard about him. They've been longing for his presence. He's born in the village. The forest is alive. You know, it knows that Krishna's there. It's excited. It's, it's living for him. And now he's coming for the first time. So something like that. The doning of love. And This is how, you know, upside down, this kind of yoga gets. God falls in love that's a very interesting theological concept this is the center of heart of Godi Vaishnavism so the Purvarag is on the part of Krishna or on the part of the forest? Krishna takes Purvarag and the forest there is Purvarag from both sides Purvarag for Krishna when he falls in love with gopis Purvarag for Radha when she falls in love with Krishna and there are those devotees who attend to each of them in their in their plight so to speak Krishna maddened by Bhakti, the Bhakti of Radha, maddened by that, gone crazy. This is What is what is the power of Bhakti? Uh, and she's mad about him. Another question? Yes? Yesterday you also talked about how the unsuccessful yogi might end up in heaven and enjoy for a lifetime that seems like an eternity for us. But I was wondering about is there any chance for bhakti in heaven or seems like an awkward long detour? Is there any serva or any...? There's a chance for their bhakti, sure. But the problem with heaven is that it's not conducive in that it's too enjoyable. So, like I said, if you think today, okay, um, you're all going to live for a thousand years. Well, you're going to think, jeez, I've got time. <laughs> and uh, and and here's an unlimited supply of money <laughs> so you know not to people complain people going to be running into the yoga ashram you know for out of there's no negative impetus hmm? there may be some positive impetus, but in the beginning, largely our yoga pursuit comes from negative impetus, a failed relationship, we lost our job, or we're just like. Life just isn't working for me, which is good, because it it doesn't work, (laughs) materially speaking. We're like a fish out of water, so some negative impetus is there and pushes us in a direction. The more that we accumulate a sanskar, a tendency for bhakti over lifetimes and so forth, then we'll find someone's coming out of positive impetus, because they've arrived at that stage. But in the beginning, negative impetus will be um, greater so in heaven there's no negative impetus. There's no karmic implications even. In other words, if you, you can enjoy unlimitedly and there's no there's no repercussions for it even. So that's why it's like looks like it looks at a glance like that's where to go. Go there with my friends and family and just enjoy forever and there's no repercussions like there are here. So I'll sacrifice here to go there. So there's not a lot of impetus. But if one has enough bhakti samskar for example, and they are only going there because they have a little propensity for enjoyment left. The Krishna wants to just drown that out completely. It just floods them with it, and then there are instances where, from heaven, they go they enter the lila when Krishna descends and performs his pastimes. So those are certain types of developed yogis. Another question? Yes. I heard you said that in the long run, even Vaishnava Paras, uh fades out because maybe that Vaishnava that was offended uh, dies or you just cannot apologize. And it makes sense in that context, but I wanted to hear your explanation. Well, that's actually the second half of Gopas' question that he forgot that he asked, and I knew there was a second part. It leads to it anyway, but he forgot that he asked it, so when I asked him about it, he said, well, what if the Vaishnava doesn't acknowledge being offended? comes to mind when you ask the question. But but Krishna acknowledges, my devotee, you may have offended him like this. The devotee won't think you offended me. He's not like that or she's not like that for the most part. But Krishna will take offense. So it said the dust of the feet of, of the devotee takes offense. That also means that the devotees of the devotee will take offense. Someone may offend... My guru, he may think, oh, I don't take that seriously, but we will take it seriously. What that person did, and so we are upset. So we have to be satisfied. So if the guru, that guru or saint passes and it's not rectified, then you can rectify it through the others, through the dust of his feet, so to speak, the people who have attached themselves to him. Or in time, time heals all wounds, something like that. that answer your question? But that's what I don't understand. How does time... So, if it's all a matter of time, after all, why should somebody go through the effort of trying to repair it? Because it could be a long time. <laughs> it could be a long time. time. If you piss Krishna off, it could be a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that's the point. Why? You think, well, he'll get over it, you know. Well, he lives a long time too he has a good memory <laughs> maybe not a good idea but in point is in time he may be more pacified and give you some opportunity and and so it will be rectified with the help of time something like that alright we'll stop there. Sriman Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai Gauri Vaishnava Guru ki Jai